Time is 11.22 p.m. on a Friday night. We've been drinking for four hours. The question that I pose to my good friend and roommate, Digu Desai, is what his picture of social justice is. First, shall we attempt to define the term? What is social justice? It yeah, means well, many things to many different people. Uh, you can't, like, uh, social justice is an incredibly loaded term, like you... You can't just say social justice without meaning something right now in 2016. But this is what I want to know. Is I want to know what it, what it means to you. I mean, um, if I had to, to put it mildly in, in southern white parlance, I think Diku would be what they call a n- Again, so what is a... So you... So let's, from let's, the music yeah. that you listen to, from the, the tone that you take, that when no, you talk about yeah. white people, it just it just seems that you you love black people immensely, and you're very concerned with their struggle, and you as a as a dark skinned ethnic minority who grew up in Texas, you seem to associate with them heavily. So I just I really want to know, for you, what does social justice look like? It's a very vague question. Let's let's actually define social justice. Okay, so let's assume, let's assume let's assume that uh, the the role of social justice or the the end game of social justice is social egalitarianism. So regardless of your your ethnic background or I don't know for some people their gender orientation or or your economic status, that the goal is equal opportunity, and that and that talented people will rise. And, and assume a role in society that's proportionate to what they have to offer as, as opposed to where they come from or who their parents are. I think we were on to something before about when you said uh, sort of the, the obsession with the music or the times of the 60s. And I think it's not uh, an obsession with social justice. It's an obsession with simplicity and sort of honesty, which is sort of uh, simplicity within itself. The idea that like if you say something sort of walk the walk like american yeah you also have to understand american the 60s was like it was sort of 60s 70s america was sort of uh heralded as like the best place on the planet like it was like the the, the most free it was the like the most equal the most like this was before the, the american dream was fucking obviously shattered for everybody it was like it was very it felt like it was it was the it was the land of infinite opportunity sort of it was the, it was the promised land you know like it was the idea that like we could all do it if we just worked hard enough well i think and historians of the time kind of dispelled you know dispelled no, but, but they they kind of consider that uh, that that pivotal year 1966 67 uh, 68 you know like that that's kind of the period where the the uh the 1950s TV commercial version of the American dream. It, those are the years in which it was dispelled. And that the, I mean, the, the whole world was in a state of incredible turmoil um, with the, you know, the Soviet invasion of, uh, I want to say Czechoslovakia. We'll fact check that later. But, and, and uh, you know, for example, the Cuban revolution and the war in Vietnam 
starting to warm up like you know like the global power balance being set up like upset and at the same time there's enormous social upheaval going on in the united states i don't know i, I think i want to go back to this idea of uh, sort of simplicity and and honesty that's what i'm obsessed with and as far as the music it, it's more tangential it's just the idea that i like simple music i like the idea that there could just be a three-minute song a ditty about something and just it is what it, they're saying it is you know like what a wonderful world it could be sam you know, harris shit cook sam cook but yeah I sorry just, my whiteness leaked out in that one it's just i don't know i, I think that's more the i don't know if you want to attach a, a racial component to it or something i'd say it's just uh yeah it kind of exposed the i mean it, it sort of <clears throat> it does it in a very subtle way it just sort of exposes the idea that like we're all equal except for anybody who's not white. <laughs> I think you're right about the the simplicity. I don't think that's necessary. I think there was something beautiful about the racism in the 60s. It was just so honest, and so open, so clear. Like, you're black, I hate you. You know, like, it was just it was beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I mean, it's much better than now where everybody's pretending that they don't hate black people. But... <laughs> I agree with that. I think that's one of the the most annoying things about the modern sensibility or the modern social justice where it's 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 not just that people are trying to enforce a radical kind of egalitarianism. What it really is is that people are trying to deny that there's differences between people at all. Uh, so people want to start with the proposition that we're equal under the law or that we're equal citizens, but then they want to take that also to mean that that there's there's no difference between us whatsoever. That there's no difference between the way that a white person or a black person might think about those things, or that there's no difference between a white person or a black person's values. And I think obviously that, that whether you're white or black, that your values probably exist on a, a social spectrum that, that might be continuous within this community and that the, the spectrum might vary greatly within a community, but that, that the differences can actually, in fact, be vast. I don't know, I feel like you aren't really politically correct in trying to express what you're trying to say. Well, you got to understand that I have an idea in my head that that's kind of half-formed or that... Um, Wasn't that the it, purpose of the drinking is to overcome your white filter? No, uh, because what you don't is, is is what you don't understand is that as a as a straight white male, and this is the only the only time the only thing that I think that that straight white males have a disadvantage when we're talking about things is that I have an incredible burden to not be racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic when I say anything. No, I, again, I I said it before. You are the devil. Yeah. And when you <laughs> and when you prove yourself to be a human being, you are afforded every you know the leeway. Every opportunity that I as a as an ethnic person am afforded. You know, like you, you, you can say everything I can say when you're willing to at the very jump just be able okay. to prostrate and Well let's try let's dive right in. Let's dive right in, uh, and try and fucking cut out all the SJW bullshit. I would say that I think in my experience, uh, with whether it's black people I met, black people I know intimately, I would say that there are often very salient differences. Salient differences, not just in the way that we talk or, or the way that we act, but also just in terms of our values. What are our core values? And 
and uh, it seems stupid to to try and like talk around that problem in a sense. That, but you've uh, been doing it your whole life. Because well, at least at least at least when you got to McGill. Yeah, I think that's when it became a problem. Uh, because where well, I, I don't know I I don't know. If was it so different in high school? Did you do you feel like you had more freedom? Well, there? no. So there was there was like two maybe three black kids that grew up in my neighborhood, like where I grew up. But they were I mean they were they were visibly black. They had they had dark skin and curly hair, but. They didn't act like the black people that you see on American television. In fact, they <laughs> they acted whiter than I ever acted, and they were worse at basketball than I was. He's a white ass black. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I mean. But it it was kind of like you know the Asian kids that were living in my neighborhood, in my in my very you know reclusive or me might even call it exclusive neighborhood. They were they were super white, and so. There was no question or no, no no difference of values or behaviors and no difference in speech between anyone living in this neighborhood. Because everybody was white. Because everyone was white, right? You had Asian white people and black white people. Right. So, but when I went out to... So, like, when did you find black black people? That was when I went out to McGill. And I met either either American blacks or I met Quebecois black people. But McGill is... mostly Haitian. McGill is still very white, no? I mean, like... But it was funny... Any black, black, black guy who gets into McGill is running some kind of game, huh? I, I think you're right. <laughs> like, I think you're right. That's common sense. There were a lot of... A lot of the dudes that I met there were half black and were not... I mean, they were, they were black enough that they would get... Like, they could play that... Oh, yeah. They could play that black it's card. A good card to play. There were a lot of African... Uh, to... to differentiate between Africans and, and American blacks. But, I mean, there were a lot of, like, Africans at McGill that were basically... there. I mean, these guys were... Some of these guys were, like, the fucking... Like, the sons of robber barons and princes and, you know, fucking... I don't know, for all I know, warlords. Yeah, fucking Mugabe's nephew. <laughs> like, pretty much. A totally different thing. And, honestly, some of those guys had... Pretty much as as bad a set of fucking values as I think you can imagine. I mean, like you want to talk about <laughs> like least least progressive. You think about a school like McGill. I mean, it's almost like very like it's like you know almost like the Oberlin College of Canada, yeah, well, Yale Canada, where, where everyone has a social justice agenda and is obsessed with victimization and otherization and Asians. I think I and think isms. that in and of itself would probably fuck your vision. Of what black blacks are like. If if the first black blacks you meet are like Mugabe's nephew, he's got this uh, vision in his head of just running train on white people. <laughs> you know, like that's not black black people. Right? No, okay, that's McGill. Black, I want to make this the first you know black I mean? black guy I ever met in my life. There was a uh, we had this uh, this I was the manager of the basketball team. Uh, we had an in- invitational like a friendly game between our school in Western Illinois. These are the two oldest basketball teams on the history of the earth. So McGill is the second oldest and Western Illinois is the oldest team continually in existence. So we're talking about a hundred plus years on both sides of continual basketball history. There's, there's probably a dude on the, 
a white dude on the Western Illinois team that was named Horatio or something. You almost, right? That's, that's how old we're talking. Like, yeah, really. No, uh, Western Illinois was, was I, I, don't, I don't know if there was a single, I, I think the whitest guy there was like a really light-skinned Hispanic guy. I mean, it's a really, Western Illinois is a really, uh, for lack of a better word, a really working-class school. But uh, there was a dude there who was from Sippy, like fucking really thick, a black dude with, who was very dark and cornrowed and had, had a really, really thick Mississippi drawl. And I could not understand a word out of this guy's mouth. Like it was like it was like playing Scrabble with the lights <laughs> off, trying to get, trying to figure out what this guy was saying to me. Like, and then um, and then that same semester, I, you know, in American Lit, we started reading Mark Twain, and it just like, you know, like like in an instant, it just kind of like he came was up. Jim. Yeah. <laughs> like like like, but but uh, it was such a neat thing. Like uh, it's such a neat thing to see. see I that, know a real Jim. But, yeah. See, no, but to see that, like you know, like 160, 170 years later, to see those same linguistic tropes transmitted all the way down to this guy who plays basketball for Western Illinois U. That was cool. <laughs> that was a that was neat. That's a that right there was a moment of white nerdery. It really is very like. I think that's a very white privileged thing is to be interested in a very. Uh, well, it's condescending. I mean, you have to understand yes. that. Yes. Uh, it's sort of at least it's, it is it's, condescending. It's, it's, it's un- oh, no, it's not necessarily like it's ignorantly condescending. It's sort of seen as condescending by other people. But like that concept is probably not all that understood. But no, but I there are there are people in the same way, and I and obviously it wasn't like a, a blatant like a, an intentional attempt to like. Yeah, show your superiority as a rich white. Man. But I'm sure, I'm sure if you caught me on videotape, I'm, I'm sure that I had the biggest shit-eating smile on my face, <laughs> like shaking this guy's hand. I'm like, you know, like, wow, I'm meeting a real, a real Mississippi Negro with a Negro dialect. Like, it must have been. I almost wish I could have been on the other side of that moment uh, to see this, this, like, uh, this five foot four, like one hundred and twenty pound. Eighteen uh, year old white kid from Calgary, Alberta. No, no, I, super I, stoked to see to see this fucking two hundred and ten pound community. Six six, yeah, enormous machine of a man, basketball playing machine of a man. Guy could have guy could have crushed my neck with his forefinger and thumb. Cock like your forearm. Don't dispute it. <laughs> I'm gonna go out and say that right now. I don't care how racist or profiling it sound. Black dudes have huge cocks. I worked on a fucking basketball. <laughs> worked on a fucking basketball team. I saw a black cock every day. I have seen for a straight white dude. I have seen an enormous amount of black cock, <laughs> and it's fucking large. It's uh, daunting. I mean, I got over it after a while. And you gotta understand when you are a. When you are an insecure, frenetic, neurotic Jew white guy who loves literature and poetry and studies English literature, and yeah, I already said neurotic Jew yeah, white guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that that when you're surrounded by enormous black dick all the time, you start to doubt yourself. I think it's a uh, so it's it so it being the basketball team manager that really fucked you up, and not your mother or father. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, 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 the night is young. We can still talk about that. <laughs> we'll get there. But uh, you just eventually realize, you're, you're like, you know what? I'm never going to be that great, but I can still be great to the people that matter to me. And that's mostly what I feel about my own dick size. 
Uh, I don't know, folks. Uh, I think earlier we were talking about the idea of uh, the glass ceiling um, black women presidents and how fucking unreal that concept is in 2016. The idea of that a black woman is going to get elected president of the United States in 2016. I don't know. I'm very, I obviously am very cynical, but I believe with all my heart that it's not going to happen. Oh, that's a bold assumption. I don't think it's going to happen while I'm alive, but if it does, you can put me on that one. Um, I don't know. It's a, a, a good one. I'm 33 at the time of this recording. 27 you are. 27? 28, I'll 28. Be 29 in April. And do you do you see a black woman president in your lifetime? No, but if you had asked me ten years ago if I had seen a black man president in my lifetime, I would have said the same thing. I would have said no. No, well, now you have the benefit of hindsight. It's twenty twenty. Do you well, see? Well, then a black I see. Woman? Then I say yes. Uh, <laughs> that's horseshit. That's not honest. Like that's just a... no. I'm, I'm I'm just just extrapolating based off of. So you're gonna die based in... off of hindsight. All right, wait, wait. Let, let's be honest. I'm going to die 75, right? So I'm 33 now, so I got 37 more years, right? Somewhere, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, so what, 2016 plus 37 is 2043. 2043, it's near selection 2042. Uh, so 42, the year before I die, there's going to be an election. Will there be a black president? 42. Right? You see a black woman present before. Like, maybe you'll live to fucking uh, 2048 or some 20... Yeah, 2092, because you have fucking all kinds of uh, artificial uh, cryogenics and shit. You can freeze yourself. And long life. 2042, you see a black woman yeah. present before that. I don't see why not. I mean, that Hillary is going to open up the field for women, and horse then it's going to be free game. Horseshit, horseshit. First of all, Hillary, Hillary getting elected. I don't buy that. I hope not. I mean, you want to talk about a rape apologist? There's one. I. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> really, I. Really, it doesn't. It really doesn't mean anything to me. Both in the sense that it doesn't. I don't understand the context in which you're saying it. I also don't understand. Cut that one out. Failed <laughs> joke. Like failed to please an audience of one. Black woman president. The year before we die. We. Suicide pact. There you go. Of course. You are. Yeah. Fuck it, we'll do it in 2016. Anytime. Anytime. I don't want to live to be as old as... You know, my fucking... My uncle died this year at the age of 98, and he couldn't hear a goddamn thing. He had gone a full year of his life completely deaf. I think you uh, you have a certain... Uh, I think you have a youthful bent on... Uh, no, it, what it means to be alive. But imagine that for a sec, where your your only human input is just a newspaper. Like, your wife is still alive. She's still in your fucking apartment. He still tastes food. He still smells smells. You can't taste food and smell shit when you're that old. Like, I, I, I saw the guy, like, a couple years ago, I went and I visited him at his retirement home. He just, like, sit there at dinner and just fucking shake on the salt. Like, shake on the salt like it was the fucking, like, medicine that was keeping him alive. I think, really, he was trying to kill himself. No. He would have found a better way. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you really are. I mean, I I hate to sound like the fucking crotchety old man, but I really think you are sort of... It's kind of naive, like, the idea, like, I, I, because we've talked about this before, yeah. the, the idea that you want to die as a man with dignity. Yeah, and, actively. In the, yeah, yeah, and you don't want to be in a fucking wheelchair, you don't want to be fucking 
somebody changing your shitty diapers before you're dead and yeah on some level i respect it but man that ain't how it works out nah i never do this well at least you understand like when you make these uh bold and naive statements you you understand the naivety behind them i don't know what do you think like when you say like obviously we've made we've made these jokes and comments in jest and it is what it is but i don't know i think it's man it's different when you get there man i think that the life force of the life ethos is kind of powerful i also think death is really scary when you think about it i think that's what kind of like keeps a lot of people going because like honestly i mean like when you when you fucking think about i don't know about you i don't believe in god do you not in the traditional sense Okay, but so just just to clarify the question, I mean, like, after you die, do you think there's any kind of conscious existence we can be a part of? Yes. Oh, so what are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of death. Okay, you're not afraid of death. I am, sorry, maybe maybe this is just my fucking egocentrism talking, but I I always kind of felt that a a really supreme fear of death was kind of at the core of... All of us, or at the core of a lot of us. No, I think, I, well, I think it's a very Western, well, I, I really do believe it's a very Western thing. You're right, though. Uh, white people, or the Judaism, Christian tradition, is really hateful and fearful of death. Whereas... Like, death is the punishment. punishment. Fatalism and an almost kind of from-birth acceptance of death is rampant in Asia, where we live now. Well, I think it's just, it's, it, for me, it it's, comes it's like... The, it's the other extreme of the, I, well, I guess the other extreme of it is nihilism, um, where you would want to kill, you have no value of your own life, and you just, you, you would even want to kill other people because you don't care, but I honestly feel that, like, where I lived... Oh, let me ask you this. Uh, where I lived in Korea for four years, and where you lived in Korea, you lived there for <clears> two years, and here in Japan as well, I think there's this kind of East Asian strain of semi-nihilism where this but just really like horrible fatalism where people don't place very much value in life and as as a consequence suicide is very prevalent and people don't seem to take take the finiteness or the or the uh, what i would refer to as the you know the the preciousness or the value of life so i could take this in two ways i could ask you what is one, what is the difference between an insane, illogical Islamic terrorist that flies a plane into a building and an insane, illogical kamikaze pilot who flies his plane into an American, you know, aircraft carrier in 1940, 40 or 42 or 43? But, uh, so that, or I could say that the West comes up with these ideas of nihilism and fatalism, these labels, nihilism, fatalism, the idea that it just sort of is what it is, as the sort of protection against Western values. It's like, oh yeah, over there, they're, they're sort of, they're crazy, they're, they're fatalist, they're, they're nihilist. They believe this idea that, you know, it's like these, they, 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 these are loaded terms, these are heavily loaded terms in Western. If you say somebody's a fatalist or a nihilist in the West, it's a, it says a lot about who that person is, you know, yeah. like, Accurate or not, it's a, it's a very, very, very damning terms. Right. Yeah, you're right about that. So I think, so, so, so those are the, I guess, the two. To answer your former question, what is the difference between someone who flies a building or plane into a building flight? You, He's a terrorist. He's a terrorist. 
what is the difference between a kamikaze is a nationalist or jihadist and a and a kamikaze pilot? Well, the one really one, one was obviously from a country that we sort of as Amer we we uh, Americans sort of help to build up and you're sorry you're looking that you're looking you're looking at that the lands of post World War Two or you're looking that you're very myopic on that point. As far as I'm concerned, the difference between a jihadist and the difference between a kamikaze pilot, the only worthwhile or salient difference is the name of the god in which they sacrifice their own life. For a kamikaze pilot, that was Hirohito. For a jihadist, that was Allah. And to, to wit, the point that I'm making is that their insanity and their stupidity is one of the same. This is one thing, one of my, one of my key principles or one of my... One of my key beefs with humanity at this moment is the willingness that people have to kill and die for their religion. And thankfully, that uh, that uh, impulse has been all but eradicated within the Japanese. All but eradicated. And for some reason, in Islam, it still remains. No, we can no, talk no about... it hasn't been eradicated. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, it's no. Sort of... I mean, I, I don't doubt. I don't doubt that. If... I mean, it has. We been most we see those guys. We see those guys driving down Midosuji Street in no, their no, black no, vans. No, 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 no. I don't doubt that if those black vans were fucking zeros, that they would be. That some of those guys would be flying them into American boats. There's not crew gun cruisers anymore. So it's like I don't know yachts or. But do but... us all a favor. <laughs> but. As far as I'm concerned, the willingness to kill and die for a deity is an age-old stupidity that we can do without. But the willingness to kill and die for a country is a commendable trait that we should all celebrate. No, no, no. Stop straw man. I don't believe that. I, I mean, let's take Canada as an example. Right, let, me, let me take this to an extreme because the okay. extreme is Jocko Willing, right? Incredibly articulate, incredibly uh, just an intelligent, bright, sharp guy. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Jocko Willink is, first of all, you suck at listening to podcasts because he's been on every worthwhile podcast. We're not even on a podcast. Anyways, fucking... Jocko Willink is a U.S. Marine who is a veteran of the Iraq War and who is a, a kind of people's philosopher in a sense in the philosophy of violence and he's been very vocal about um the potential usefulness of violence and not just its applications but the philosophy that underlies it and for anyone who thinks that people in the united states army are just total idiots who go in there with a sadistic desire to kill you should listen to jacko willink and get a different perspective on the issue. Hi, Dozo. He's, uh, he's, he's you as uh, the smart white liberal listener. Uh, put in the, the, the context of being a military leader and a great one. That's, uh, I guess, the easily explainable definition of Jocko Willing. Um, getting back to him. Yeah, taking, taking, uh, taking the, the sort of uh, analogy to, to its extreme. Kamikaze pilots are insane and terrorists, and that idea is, is bonkers, but Jocko Willink makes sense because... No, that, I think that's a very good question. I honestly think uh, intentions matter greatly when we talk about these things. I think, I think if you, for example, uh, let's compare like 
take the most extreme example, I'm sorry, but let's take, uh, for example, like al-Baghdadi, like the leader of the Islamic State versus Jekyll Willink. If you gave either of these individuals the perfect weapon, so a weapon, I don't know, an ultra laser or a space laser or a fucking a nuclear weapon, but that only eradicated whoever you wanted to. What you're trying to stretch it to is if they won the war, what would happen? What would happen? What would what would Al Baghdadi do to the world if he gained had world domination and what would Jacka Willink do? And I honestly think that the fundamental difference between the two of them is that Al Baghdadi wants to enforce a strict literalist interpretation of the Quran of a seventh century text written by a child molesting desert desert dweller on the fucking world, whereas Jacko Willink would probably just like to watch HBO and play catch with his kids. Maybe I'm being naive in this sense, but I don't when I listen to that man talk, and I I feel somewhat experienced because I've listened to him talk for over seven hours on radio. I don't feel that there is any malice or evil or that he really wants global domination as a matter of principle. But when I listen to al-Baghdadi talk, and trust me, and I've, I've listened to him talk a lot more than Jocko Willink, I get the sense that that dude wants what's worst for the world right now. He wants to bring about the apocalypse and the destruction of everything that you and I hold dear. And he hates alcohol, and for that reason alone, you should be doing everything in your power to resist it. Cheers that? Thank you. Cheers. And uh, the counterpoint would be that I believe that <clears throat> were Jocko willing to win, the world that he would create would be perfect. Were al-Baghdadi to win, the world that he would create would be perfect. I see it, yeah, that's a good point. I've often wrestled with this one. Um, because if we could get everybody yeah, to run yeah. in the same direction, yeah. it would be the best fucking direction ever. I, no, I totally see what you're getting at. I often, I've often wrestled with this point. I mean, for example, uh, you take something like the Holocaust, I mean, what's objectively wrong about that? I, many of my, the people, the thinkers that I admire, I mean, they believe that there are things that are objectively knowable about about right and wrong. And I, I think it's only true, I, I agree with them to a certain extent, but I think that's only true in a relative sense. Like, for example, I, I feel that if the West had lost World War II, like if, if these, like, quote-unquote, freedom and democracy countries had lost World War II and we'd, be, we'd grown up in a world that was dominated by fascism and race theory, that we would just, we would honestly, everyone, except the heretics, except like, you know, the most crazy radical people, would believe that that was just the right way to be. And that, well, this, this world assumes that I'm not, I'm not half Jewish and, and wouldn't have been wiped out in a, okay, but so just for the sake of argument, let's say that uh, the other half of me survived in this world and I'm just in this like Aryan world. I wouldn't see anything wrong with it. It would have been just it, just the world that I grew up with. And we would be reading about these in history textbooks, about how there used to be these people called Jews that were just causing strife. Um, and I don't... I can, I can fully imagine and envisage this world. I can totally see it because I, I understand how malleable 
the human imagination and how malleable human values are. Even in my own lifetime, even in the last 10 years, I think about the enormous leaps that my my own value system has gone under. And I just think it's totally a, it's totally a possible world. Yeah, mental jiu-jitsu. So that being said, why not join? Why not join ISIS? Well, so let's backtrack the thought experiment a couple of steps. Right now... I think the only thing that's... I, I think ostensibly, really, the only thing that's stopping you is that you have experienced booze and premarital sex and... You've, you've, I've experienced a lot of both. You've gone down into the depths that these people are hoping to, to keep you from. Yeah. Right? To stop you from fucking being a, an adulterer, to stop you from being a, a fucking, being a victim of your sort of natural urges. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's essentially the idea. So, right? and I can hear, I can hear the echoes, the kind of cultural relativist echoes in, in what you're saying. Not that you are one of those people, but um, it's kind of like when I think back to me before I knew all this stuff, was I happier? Um, and it's it's a difficult question, right? No, it's not. Yes. Was I happier? Yes, you Was are. I happier before yes. I was fucking chicks? Yes. And was I happier before I was drinking? No way. Absolutely yes. I don't think so. I honestly, yes. I honestly don't think so. I honestly don't think so. I, uh... I mean, it's proven. The less you know, the happier you are. This is what's proven? empirically proven. No, it's not empirically proven. Yes, it's not. Uh, consult your, your your fellow white men at MIT. No, it's, no, 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 no. It's not empirically proven. <coughs> Ignorance is bliss. It's like, not this empirically is... proven. It's commonly asserted and widely accepted, but not empirically proven. For me, at least. For me, at least, I can speak for myself on this subject with one hundred percent confidence. I would rather know what it's like to fuck <clears throat> chicks and drink booze and be living in this continual cesspool of self-doubt and and terror about the end rather than where I was before when I felt like I had a relationship with my imaginary friend God and that he had a plan for me. I am I feel better off in the knowledge that God is dead. <laughs> I've always felt that there's kind of a radical distinction between scientists or people who I think are are m- much more intelligent than everyone else or like all of their peers or the other species and people who would make adequate or people who would make good leaders. I think the qualities of leadership are radically different from intelligence is the point that I'm trying to try and get at. So for example, Jacko Willink, in my opinion, has all the, the qualities uh, of a good leader, whereas Sam Harris has all the qualities of a great intellectual, and the two are sometimes incompatible. The two are never compatible. Not, not never. Never. Rarely. Rarely. But I, I, I would say, hey, you might be right about never, but you might be right about never, or the, the compromise is always unsatisfactory. But, um, so for example... Sam Harris is my favorite living. I mean, it's a, it's a he's jerk. my favorite public living like living intellectual. But I don't I don't think I would I don't think I would I don't think I would elect him. He's so masterful. He's such a jerk off artist. Why do you? But why do you hate that so much? Because it's it, I mean it's literally I mean, he, he like only, you, you have to understand that yeah. what just took place this this podcast that just took place with, yeah. between the two of them was the collision of two opposite forces. The idea that. I don't know what the right direction is, but I know what I think is the right direction. Yeah. And I'm going to lead my people that direction until there are sort of other 
there's a better direction given or there, I feel like we'll be better off going in yeah. a different... That, that's what a leader does, right? Yeah. What Sam Harris does is just jerks off and says, I'm going to go in any direction. I don't... I, I, I think that's a little unfair. I also think that you were right when you were talking about that there were two like, collisions. Wait, wait, in, what, in what direction does Sam Harris go? I'll get there. I'll get there. Just give me three, three minutes of leeway. Uh, you're right in saying that, that Sam Harris and Jacko Willink represents the collision of two opposite forces. But I don't think that they're not at all incompatible. And you will notice, if you, if you listen to that podcast again, I mean, they, they agree on every salient point. Or That's every the whole that. fucking point. Is they're all like... It's that... Oh, sorry, continue. No, but what, I'm, what I view Sam Harris as ruling is... And what I've always viewed the role of the intellectual to be is to ask questions and to open the discussion and to flesh it out and to to pick out the salient points, the points of disagreement. But to say that Sam Harris doesn't have doesn't have a direction or doesn't have a viewpoint or something is is a total misunderstanding of what he stands for as a person. I mean, to to name a cup a couple things, Sam Harris stands for. Uh, I would say. The, um, the power of dialogue over violence, or the the importance of having difficult conversations as a means to resolving problems. Secondly, and perhaps antithetically, but still related, is Sam Harris believes in the importance of the, the resolve to use violence when conversation breaks down. And I think that's an important point, and that's, I think, where he intersects with Jacko Willing, is that, is that when you get down to brass tacks, and when you reach a point where, for example, where Islamic theocracy stands in perfect opposition to Western democracy, which I believe it does, and I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but that the importance to have that, or, or that there is a fight not just an argument, but there is a violent confrontation and that, that it's important to win that fight. Okay, I think that's something that he stands for very clearly. Another principle, we'll, we'll limit this to three, but I think Sam Harris, and this is where I feel that where you should agree with him, is that he stands for scrupulous honesty. He wrote a whole book called Lying, just about the importance of honesty, whether in personal interactions or in intellectual discourse. I mean, like, it, it, seems, it seems odd to me. I feel like if Sam Harris were black to take this conversation back to its origins, you would fucking love this guy. If you were black and, and talked in a little more, I don't know, I don't know, what are you people like, street? If you talked in a little more street way, then you'd take him very seriously. But if he said brother, but he's <laughs> he's he doesn't say it very often. Christopher Hitchens talk a little bit more about the man. Christopher Hitchens said brothers and sisters all the time, <coughs> but he 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 enunciated the s in both of those words. But uh, I don't know. I think you're on to something. Um, the last one was kind of a shit point. Uh, it was, it was, uh, I'm full of shit points. No, no, no. The last one was a legitimate shit point. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll dispel all three of your points with, uh, with one counter. Wait, what was the first one? Oh, God. Number one, Sam Harris believes in the power of conversation in order to settle important mm -hmm. arguments about values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think that one is kind of 
vaguely salient. The second one was the, was the most salient, I think. That Sam um, Harris and Jacka Willing agreed, agreed on, on all salient points. No, well, they agreed on the idea that when 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 uh, was it jerk off white term uh, intersectionality. No, no. When uh, when something fails, it's time for action. Uh, was that fucking? So when. Conversation breaks down. Right. That violence. What is that is white? Resort. Is this that stupid fucking white guy with his white point? Uh, when something. Charlie Sheen. No, no, it was like a British general. When uh, what is that? Von Clausewitz. No, no. When when uh, when white people pretend to get along. What is it called? Uh, Congress. When civil society. When you send a guy out to parlay and the other guy, and then you have talks. What's that shit called? When you negotiations. Ah, when negotiations fail, it's time for action. <laughs> you know? And uh, the idea that they, they agreed on that. When negotiations fail, it's time for action. And, you know, when, the, when, when negotiations with the Islamic theocracy fail, it's time for action and that the West should win that conflict. I don't agree with you. I don't think the West should win. I, I don't know that either side should win, but I... I mean, I, I know which side is more well-equipped, but... It has no bearing on which side should win. I think they're both they're both fucking stupid. And I they're both equal. You know? I don't think they're I I don't think they're morally morally culpable in the same way. I'm sorry. You but, know, and and, and but, again, it's 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 the idea that sort of one is the better of two evils. They're both fucking evil. But I don't. I'm I'm tired of. I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of being a moral relativist. I really am. I, I spent the I spent the last seven or eight years as a moral relativist, trying to split the distinctions between right and wrong, and on on a scaling, you know, like on on a fucking sliding scale of of a moral hierarchy. And it, it was not only was it exhausting, but it, it was horribly unproductive. I don't think we know anything about morals that being said i don't think we know anything about morals if we can't say that what's going on in syria right now is wrong that being said like where are you gonna lead the country like continue the western no what i'm what i'm saying i mean you are a product of the west you were born and raised, and you believe everything Western. And I'll own up to all the sins of the West if you want. I'll prostrate and I will flagellate myself. And and and, but so why what is I will it that I will not do? What I will not. What I will not do, or or what I'm what I'm getting sick of hearing all the time, is that there's no moral difference between the federal government of the United States and ISIS. Perhaps I'm not. I'm, I'm, I might be straw manning you, but I'm hearing that so much these days. When like, what we should be fucking using every means at our disposal, whether political or military, to fucking well use them, delegitimize and use kill them. those I mean, yeah, people. Yeah. What you are admitting, yeah, is that it's time for war. In your own admission. The idea of sort of uh, negotiating with the Islamic theocracy, it's over. It's time for war. In the case of ISIS, yes. And that's, in the that's case something like, that, that Sam Harris has said, and that's something that Jocko Willink has said. And yeah. Just about everybody I've ever... I, I can't imagine anybody I've ever talked to but has said anything I otherwise. Think, I just think, and it's not like we didn't have a role <clears> in this, but I think in like the case of ISIS, yeah, I feel comfortable with saying that. 
In the case of like fucking, I don't know, like Adam Chowdhury in in the UK, you know, should we fucking expel that guy from Britain, or or should we go in and arrest all those people in his congregation? You're just jerking off at this point. No, 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 no. No, I'm trying to, I'm trying to split the difference. Yeah, you're jerking off. Is okay if jerking off is if splitting the difference is is jerking off, then fine. Yeah, you're assigning the number of asterisks to which this this guy gets this, and then this situation gets this asterisk. But isn't that isn't that what making moral judgments is all about? I mean, if that's what, if that's the way you see things, sure, absolutely, yeah. Make your asterisks. I mean, fucking spend 30, 45 minutes making them. Spend an hour, spend three years. It's just jerking off. What you're admitting is that there is no other solution other than war with ISIS. Do you think anyone in a command position in ISIS is a rational actor? I mean, do you think any one of those people could be negotiated with in terms of values that matter to us? Well, again, you're saying us as if we're the same. We have the same values. That's a big stretch. Actually, I don't think that's too big a stretch to make with with you and I. I know that we differ on many things. I don't think you really understand my values. I've lived with you for four months. I think I understand your values to a certain point. The big stretch. That's important. Is there no more liquor? Uh, plenty more liquor. I think we need to fucking make a conclusion. Conclusion. I mean, I know people say that we're supposed to like kind of some kind of fucking point of convergence at the end of of a podcast, but I think all we've really learned is that brown people from the United States and and prissy, effeminate, epicene liberal arts majors from Canada can't really get along unless. We just drink together, and then everyone can get along. That's not a good ending. Take two. Go. I think we could get along if none of us ever drank. <laughs> none of us ever Then had. why isn't ISIS the most peaceful place on Earth? It would be if all of us were members of ISIS. Point taken. It would be the fucking best place on the planet. Point taken. Between me and you, I don't think our, I don't think our values are... Are too too different. Whatever. I I really I really I really really don't think you understand my values. I think I've done a very good job of not making it easy for anyone to understand my values. Kind of goes back to the original question that I was asking, didn't I? What do you stand for? Essentially, or no, no, what, even what? even limited to the the idea of social justice. Or well, you, the, yeah, like, exactly. You fucked yourself. Buddy. Like fucking, like, like just narrow it down to the most. What is in in your opinion? I mean, like, what's the answer <clears throat> to the the black question in the United States? It's very. I mean, I hate to say it, but it comes down to nothing. Like, it's fucking very Buddhist or very, uh, I guess, Zen. I mean, I fucking hate Zen. They get so much credit for things they didn't come up with. It's very Buddhist. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, the Zen's great contribution is rock gardens and suicide bombers. It just is what it is, man. That's what my values are. Like, it is what it is. Like, you people, like, you people as people that have beliefs, people that have ideas about what things should be, you people are going to do what you're going to do. It is what it is. ISIS is going to do what they're going to do. America is going to do what they're going to do. How it comes out, it comes out. That's my values.